Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. Hours before the New Hampshire primary, former President Donald Trump telling NTD his expectations for his one-on-one -on -one face off with Nikki Haley and how he plans to unify the country. Some polls have already opened in New Hampshire as voting begins today. We'll get an on the ground update on that and on Nikki Haley's campaign in the Granite State. We also take a closer look at the at primary with Trump coming off a great success in Iowa, can Haley put up enough off a challenge to stay in the race? The Supreme Court siding with the Biden administration. It's allowing Border Patrol to cut down razor wire installed by Texas along the southern border. That's as the issue of illegal immigration heats up in the 2024 election. <clears throat> The U.S. and the U.K. target Houthi infrastructure in Yemen in a fresh round of strikes, trying to stop the Iran-backed terrorist group from attacking shipping containers in the Red Sea. China defying Western sanctions on Moscow. It's importing a record amount of crude oil from Russia. We get an analysis with the host of Entity Business. Faculty members at the largest public university system in the U.S. and their strike after just one day. What was in the tentative deal? NTD's David Lime joins us in the studio. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Today is Tuesday, January 23rd. Yeah, and you know, Evelyn, that early voting community, Dixville Notch in New Hampshire, they get their 15 minutes of fame every year for being the first <laughs> votes cast in the nation's first primary. That's right. I mean, the town's moderator does say that how they vote doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but they do boast 100% of voter turnout. Yeah, all six of them, the two yeah. independents and the four registered Republicans there. Right. Um, and at the final rally last night before today's New Hampshire primary, Former President Trump tells NTD he's confident he'll win by big margins, again, repeating his Iowa victory. He also touts endorsements from a line of his former rivals who were campaigning with him as he's set to face off against Nikki Haley. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more from New Hampshire. Just hours before primary day here in New Hampshire, former President Trump telling NTD that he thinks he's going to win by big margins here. We just had a lot of polls come in the last hour and you see what they are, they're very good. Who would you call Nikki Haley to drop out? <laughs> That's up to her. He also told me he has one key to unite the country. How would you bring unity to this country, President Trump? Success. It's going to bring unity. Success. Thank you. Supporters waited in line in the cold for as long as six hours from trying to get into this packed rally of Trump and Laconia, New Hampshire. I, I think it's a one-man race at this point, and it's Donald Trump. And he's going to work hard to get things back to where they should be for America. And Trump showcasing a flood of endorsements he's gotten, including some by his former rivals who joined him on the stage. Vote Trump, and that's how we do this. We need Donald Trump. If you want four more years of Donald Trump, let let me hear you scream! In three different polls released on Monday, Trump's leading his only rival now, Nikki Haley, by double digits. But despite that, Trump is telling his supporters to still go out and vote. Because we have to win by big margins. But the reason is, in November, we have to send the signal that we're not playing games. This country has gone to hell. 
And on Tuesday, Trump will be joining us at his watch party in Nashua, New Hampshire, from where we'll bring you live coverage throughout Tuesday night. Reporting from Laconia, New Hampshire, Aris Tao, NTD News. Some polls have already opened and voters can begin casting ballots in New Hampshire pri primary. For an update on what's happening on the ground, we're joined by entities Chris Beers. Chris, uh, good to see you, first of all, bright and early. It's still very early, but what's happening so far in the election? Hi, Evelyn. Good morning. We're here in Concord, New Hampshire, in front of a polling place that opened about three minutes ago. Polling places across the state will open at uh, about 7 or 8 a.m., with all of them open by 11 a.m. They'll close at 8 p.m. In some places, voting opened at midnight with less than 100 people, any place with less than 100 people. Um, one such place, Dixville Notch, New Hampshire, has made it a bit of a tradition to start voting in the middle of the night. All six of the voters there came out in support of Nikki Haley. Um, they were outnumbered by reporters 10 to 1. Fun fact, in 2020, uh, all five of them voted for Joe Biden, which could indicate something about the results of tonight's election or not, because there's only six voters there. Evelyn. Mm, well, look at that, Nikki Haley in the lead. So you've been covering Haley's campaign. Give us a quick update, uh, update there as well. Yeah, so New Hampshire is considered one of Nikki Haley's best shots at beating Donald Trump. That's because there are relatively more moderate and liberal voters in the GOP primary here. Here's what Haley had to say ahead of elections starting last night. This is almost a year of campaigning, and it's been doing the personal touches, touching every hand, you know, answering every question, being the last person to leave. So I think that's what this is all coming down to. We're excited that it's tomorrow, and Chris has been a great friend along the way, and so... You know, we're ready to see what happens. Now, now one of the interesting things about Nikki Haley's campaign here is that, um, you know, 40 percent of the voters in New Hampshire are undeclared. And uh, uh, undeclared voters in New Hampshire can vote for either the Democratic or the Republican uh, primary. Uh, many of those voters are expected to come out and vote in the Republican primary, uh, many of them for Nikki Haley. So that could make things Pretty interesting here tonight as the vote count comes in. What's next in this race? Again, voting will open an, across the state at 11 a.m., closing at 8 p.m. And, of course, at 8 p.m., we have The Nation Decides 2024, our special live coverage of the vote count as it comes in, featuring NTD's Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer. Back to you, Evelyn. Yeah, looking forward for that one. Thank you so much, Chris Spears. Uh, keep us posted as well. All right, let's get a preview of the nation's first primary tonight and a touch on the suburban vote and a potential rematch between Biden and Trump. Please welcome Nathaniel Cogley, an associate professor of political science at Tarleton State University. Nathaniel, thank you so much for your time today. Haley has picked up a, a lot of support in New Hampshire over the last year, increasing her support nearly tenfold, but she's still about 14 points behind former President Trump in the Granite State. Is there any way she can close the gap? I agree that she's performing in New Hampshire better than any other state, but it's still not enough. Donald Trump already had a 15-point lead before DeSantis dropped out. And not only did DeSantis drop out, he endorsed Trump in the process, and he called Nikki Haley a form of corporatism and caving to wokeism. Um, Trump's lead is big here. I expect Trump to also win in New Hampshire and indeed sweep the map. Shouldn't be a surprise. He's won New Hampshire the last two cycles as well. Okay, so let's talk about what's at stake for Haley here in New Hampshire. Her campaign says she will continue on to South Carolina, even with a second place finish in New Hampshire. 
But is this really the last chance for Haley here in the Granite State, given that her polls show that she's down 36 points in her home state? Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't think she makes it to South Carolina. There's a month separation between New Hampshire and South Carolina, and Donald Trump's lead in South Carolina is bigger than New Hampshire. Yes, the people of South Carolina voted her governor, but the people of South Carolina also voted for Trump for president twice already. Um, when the polling gets very clear that she's about to lose her home state, she may drop out before it actually takes place. Well, yeah, she, she's got about a half a million dollars in raised funds after DeSantis dropped out, so we'll see if that can benefit her a little bit. But now, unfortunately for Haley, the poll numbers might not bear this out, but is there a chance that pollsters got it wrong and the majority of the Live Free or Die folks in New Hampshire would have, who vote, would have voted for DeSantis will vote for Haley instead of Trump? No, I think the majority of DeSantis voters prefer Trump, and they preferred Trump before he endorsed Trump. Now, you did highlight setting up the interview that she's trying to appeal to some non-registered voters, non-Republicans, to vote for her, and that'll help her pick up some votes. It just won't be enough. So let's look at a potential rematch between Trump and Biden, which some are saying is very likely. GOP strategists are saying that Trump performed better in Iowa suburbs than expected, and this was coupled with others saying that Biden's low approval rating and his poor record on inflation may give Trump the advantage to win back some of those suburbanites in a rematch. Do you agree with this? Well, I agree with that. Both um, Biden and Trump are going to rack up the delegates they need at the convention. We're still a long ways out, though. The convention hasn't happened. We have a popular vote in November. We have a uh, election and uh, inauguration in January. You know, Biden is the oldest president in United States history today. Tomorrow he breaks the record. The idea that he's running for re-election is unprecedented in U.S. history. Um, there could be a legit reason Biden doesn't actually make it. Uh, through this year cycle um, and also age could give them a reason to opt out if the numbers aren't good. So while the process to rack up delegates for the convention seems to be a foregone conclusion at this point, we're a long road from inaugurating the next president. Right. And former President Trump is 77. So we have two contenders of age there. And he is definitely showing a lot of vigor on the campaign trail. Nathaniel Cogley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Tarleton State University. Thank you. Thank you. And with only two Republican candidates left in the New Hampshire primary, what issues have helped voters decide which way to cast their vote? Let's take a look. Well, I liked Donald Trump when he was a president before. I felt our country was safer. Um, you know, we didn't pay as much for gas and everything else we're paying for. So I, and you know, and it, we didn't have wars going on. So I feel he's a better choice. Trump represents the people. He represents, um, the Founding Fathers, who represents the Constitution, who represents freedom um, and uh, so, um, U.S. sovereignty. I'm with Trump because he supports fishermen, you know, and uh, this obviously is my livelihood. If the business climate is better towards people like him, I do better. Nikki's the truth, and she's amazing, she's beautiful, she's the best at the debates, she just crushes and stuff. It'd be refreshing to have a young, woman who's intelligent in the Oval Office and also not to have Trump come back. Youth, energy, although Donald has a lot of energy, I will give him that, but um, new ideas and uh, a new perspective. I think there's a very real opportunity for Nikki to squeak out a percentage point on top of Trump. 
and wouldn't that shake the rafters? In today's primary race, Haley will take on Trump in what might be her last shot at the Republican nomination for president. The former South Carolina governor will look to Granite State voters to keep her in the race. Here's what we can expect in the New Hampshire matchup. Nikki Haley has reasons to be hopeful going into the New Hampshire primary today. She has crept up in the polls, averaging at 36%, according to data from 538. Granite State Republican voters are generally more moderate than Iowa's, where Trump was able to win by large margins. Haley has said that she will focus on bringing centrists and independents to the table. New Hampshire allows voters who are not registered with either party to cast their votes. Haley will be looking at those roughly 400,000 unaffiliated voters keenly. According to the final CNN University of New Hampshire poll, she leads Trump among independent voters who plan to vote Republican and those who consider themselves moderate. Is you now have people who want to decide who's a good Republican, who's a bad Republican, who's a good person, who's a bad person. That's why our country is so divided. I don't judge people. I focus on policy that's going to make America stronger. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ended his campaign on Sunday and endorsed Trump. This left his share of potential voters up for grabs. Haley has also been endorsed by New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. However, Trump is still solidly in the lead. 538 data shows his polling averages have risen to around 52 percent. That's a double-digit lead over Haley. A big victory for him in New Hampshire could mean that he'll effectively become the only Republican candidate still standing. He won New Hampshire in 2016 indicating that the state's Republicans have an appetite for his brand of conservatism. And with your vote four days from now, we're going to win another historic victory in the great state of New Hampshire, and then we're going to defeat crooked Joe Biden, the worst president in the history of our country, and we're going to make America great again. New Hampshire gets 22 delegates in the Republican primary. This is less than 1% of the total delegates who will vote at the RNC this summer. However, the state has a track record of picking the Republican nominee. Only thrice in the last 70 years has the winner in New Hampshire not gone on to become the Republican nominee for president. A strong showing here could be decisive for Haley. We've got New Hampshire, we've got South Carolina, we've got Super Tuesday. We're going to keep on going, and we're going to fight, and we're going to win. I'm used to people underestimating me. It's always fun. But there were 14 people in this race, and now there are two. The next contest will be Nevada. But in an unusual move, the state will hold both a primary and a caucus, with Trump choosing to compete in the caucus and Haley choosing the primary. The two candidates will only have their next showdown in South Carolina at the end of February. Former Arkansas governor and presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson has endorsed Haley. He says that she needs to be committed going into the next few months if she wants to beat Trump. Donald Trump's candidacy is going to weaken as we go forward with more and more court cases, a realization that the American public and the Republican Party can't win with him. He's lost three races. And now we're going to be saddled with his candidacy again if Nikki Haley's not successful. If Haley does well in New Hampshire, a tighter race could be shaping up going into Super Tuesday on March 5th. The New Hampshire Attorney General's office is investigating a fake robocall impersonating Biden. 
It says the robocall appears to be an unlawful attempt at voter suppression and that the message appears to be artificially generated. The voice told recipients it's important that you save your vote for the November election. Voting this Tuesday only enables the Republicans in their quest to elect Donald Trump again. Your vote makes a difference in November, not this Tuesday. Meanwhile, OpenAI removed a bot that impersonates Democratic presidential candidate Dean Phillips. The bot was powered by ChatGPT. Silicon Valley entrepreneurs Matt Krisiloff and Jed Somers are behind it. OpenAI says the bot violated company policy on political campaigning and impersonation. Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis has been given a pass for now in a case threatening to derail her criminal case against former President Trump. A Georgia judge yesterday put the DA's testimony on hold in the divorce proceedings of her lead prosecutor Nathan Wade. Wade has been accused of having an affair with Willis. Wade's estranged wife pushed the judge to order testimony, saying Willis is trying to hide under the shield of her position. Willis has suggested the divorce case is being used to harass her, damage her reputation, and obstruct a criminal prosecution. The judge says Wade must be questioned first. Then he will decide if Willis will be deposed. And Trump's defamation case with Eugene Carroll has been postponed until tomorrow. The courts didn't give a reason for skipping a day, but Trump's lawyers had asked for his testimony to be delayed until Wednesday after the New Hampshire primary. A juror was also sent home yesterday over COVID concerns. In Massachusetts, the State Ballot Law Commission dismissed a challenge against Trump's candidacy yesterday. The panel rejected the case on procedural grounds. It says the commission does not have jurisdiction to address the matter. The Biden administration got the green light yesterday to remove razor wire fencing that Texas installed along the southern border to stop illegal immigration. The Justice Department has argued the barrier impedes the U.S. government's ability to patrol the border and coming to the aid of migrants in need of help. And today's Daniel Monahan has more in the Supreme Court's ruling. The high court agreed Monday to temporarily let U.S. Border Patrol agents cut or remove the razor wire fencing. In a 5-4 decision, the justices granted a request by President Biden's administration to pause a federal appeals court ruling. The appeals court last month ordered the Border Patrol agents to stop removing razor wire along a small stretch of the Rio Grande while court proceedings continue. The Justice Department asked the Supreme Court justices earlier this month to step in on an emergency basis to wipe away that order, which they did on Monday. Two conservative members of the court, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett, joined the three liberal justices in the majority. Conservative Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh dissented. Texas put up around 30 miles of the wire along the southern border near Eagle Pass, Texas. Migrants can be seen here talking with Texas officials through the razor wire. Texas Governor Greg Abbott discussed the state's attempts to protect its border, speaking on Fox News, calling the waves of illegal immigration an invasion. By people we don't know who they are, where they're coming from, or the danger they may pose. Abbott says Texas cracking down on illegal crossings was the right move. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell addressed border security on Monday, calling it a matter of basic sovereignty. America's national security begins with securing and maintaining our borders. The fencing at issue in the dispute was installed on private property along the Rio Grande River by the Texas National Guard as part of what was called Operation Lone Star. 
The operation was launched by Governor Greg Abbott in 2021 to deter illegal border crossings. President Biden last week said he's looking for, quote, massive changes regarding U.S. immigration rules. Because I believe we need significant policy changes at the border. Republicans have sharply criticized Biden's immigration policies and the flow of illegal entries across the border with Mexico, an issue certain to heat up ahead of November's presidential election. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Up next, tensions running high in the Middle East. The U.S. and the U.K. strike more Houthi targets near Yemen's capital in ongoing efforts to deter the Iran-backed terrorist group from Red Sea shipping attacks. What this means for the region. And the Israeli military says 21 soldiers were killed in Gaza on Monday, the single biggest loss for Israel since the start of the war. How Prime Minister Netanyahu is reacting after the break. The 2024 presidential election is here. Live on the ground coverage until every ballot is counted. Our dedicated team with special guests covering an election cycle unlike any other. Up next, the New Hampshire primary. Underestimate me because that's always fun. Join NTD's Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer for another important election night. Get out and vote and make sure we win by big margins. The Nation Decides 2024, the New Hampshire primary. Tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on NTD News. Good to have you back. U.S. and British forces carried out a fresh round of strikes on Monday on Houthi targets in Yemen. It's the eighth round of attacks by the U.S. military and the terrorist group since the start of this flare-up. The Pentagon said the latest strikes targeted a Houthi underground storage site. The British Defense Ministry said precision-guided bombs were used to strike multiple targets near Yemen's capital, Sana'a. The targets had been used by the Iran-backed terrorist group in their attacks on ships in the Red Sea. The Houthi attacks have disrupted global shipping and stoked fears of global inflation. They've also de deepened concern that fallout from the Israel-Hamas war could destabilize the Middle East. So far, multiple rounds of strikes have done little to stop these attacks. What effect will this have on the conflict in the Middle East? We're bringing in Brandon Weikert. He's a geopolitical analyst and the author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Good morning, Brandon. Good to see you. So first, tell me more about what's known about the latest U.S. and U.K. attacks on Yemen. How big of a blow would you say these strikes are for the Houthis? Uh, well, these are significant escalations on our part. Uh, the real problem, though, is that the last few strikes, at least, have been telegraphed by the Biden administration. In fact, last week, one of the airstrikes, the Biden administration apparently informed the Houthis that they were getting ready to attack and told the Houthis where they were going to attack, allowing for the Houthis to move the uh, assets and personnel being targeted out of the way. So I don't believe that happened in this case, which is a good thing. 
Um, but uh, this is a significant escalation. It's involving now more than just America uh, in terms of operating with Britain. And we're now starting to go after sort of the heads of the, uh, the snake, if you will. Uh, but uh, still, we're, it seems like we are sort of holding back. I think that we should be escalating a lot quicker uh, and going wider, uh, going after the, the Houthis to stop them. Because whatever we're doing is not stopping them, apparently. Right. So what other steps can the U.S. take and the U.K. to stop them? Well, the first thing we need to do is expand the target set. We're, we're sort of limiting what we're doing. It's sort of this uh, piecemeal approach where, you know, we'll sort of every every uh, time we bomb, we slowly go up the escalation ladder. We should be hitting the very highest point of the escalation ladder so that they don't have time, the Houthis don't have time to react and sort of move their people and, and uh, equipment out of the way. Uh, we really need to be playing to exterminate the Houthi uh, uh, movement. And we're not. It's it's very much like to the 1990s Clinton strategy uh, of sort of making a big show, but not actually killing and destroying the things you need to to have effect at the strategic level. I see. So do you think the U.S. and U.K. would be willing to go there? How far do you think um, they're willing to go? The problem is I, I don't think that they're willing to go there, at least not yet. And I think the problem is, is that the Biden administration is still trying to play nice with the Iranians. And so they realize the Houthis are an extension of Iran and they don't want to get too um, uh divisive with Iran because they're still hoping to get a deal with Iran uh, on the nuclear issue and as well as sort of a wider peace deal. So what can be done um, to stop Iran in that case without risking a serious escalation? Um, there's really nothing we can do without seriously escalating against the Houthis. The problem is the Houthis realize that they're somewhat insulated because of the Biden administration's flawed strategy. So what they're doing is they're going to keep doing what they've been doing to shipping, knowing that it's going to negatively impact the global economy at a time when the global economy is not doing very well. Um, and so ultimately, the only way you can get this to stop is you have to go big and you have to go massive from the air with the Houthis. You can't mm -hmm. do these piecemeal strikes, but Biden doesn't seem to understand that. So as things are going now, how long do you think this this tit for tat is going to last and what's the end game here? Well, I, the tit for tat is going to go on for a longer time because the Biden administration won't just sort of, you know, uh, you know, destroy the Houthis, you know, in once in, in, in a quick, massive strike. It's sort of this piecemeal stuff. Um, and so we could be done with the Houthis, I think, in 72 to 96 hours if we really brought our full force to bear from the air. Um, it, this will go on. And what will that will happen is that will give Iran all the time it needs to continue its escalation strategy in unconventional uh, warfare against Israel and probably the Saudis as well. So I would expect wider and more aggressive uh, attacks from the Iranian proxies, the Houthis, Hamas, maybe even Hezbollah. Um, and uh, this is not going to go away because the Americans being unable to totally hit the Houthis in one fell swoop is actually empowering Iran to keep going farther with their aggression. Got it. Well, thank you so much for bringing us these really interesting insights. Brandon Weikert, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. And the Israeli military says 21 soldiers were killed in combat in southern Gaza yesterday. This is the single biggest loss for Israel since the start of the war against the terrorist group Hamas last year. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu on X called it one of the most difficult days since
since the outbreak of the war. He said the IDF has opened an inquiry into the incident. The war in Gaza entered its 108th day today. Netanyahu vowed last week Israel will not stop fighting until, quote, total victory. And family members of Israeli hostages stormed a parliamentary committee in Jerusalem on Monday. They demanded lawmakers do more to free their loved ones. Over the weekend, thousands gathered in Tel Aviv demanding Israeli government do more release the hostages. Many are also camping outside of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's home. I feel a lot of desperation and today in the Knesset everything just uh, blew up. It's been nearly four months since the October 7th attack when Hamas terrorists killed approximately 1,200 Israelis and kidnapped more than 250 others. Over 130 people are still in Hamas captivity. Israel says 27 hostages have died in Gaza. And over to the war in Ukraine, Russian missiles targeted Ukraine's two biggest cities this morning. Officials in Kyiv and Kharkiv say at least six people were killed and at least 20 others injured. Officials there say the barrage included over 40 ballistic, cruise, anti-aircraft and guided missiles. A series of Russian strikes in Kharkiv hit a gas pipeline along with a school and residential buildings. Investigators in the region say children and a woman were injured by shrapnel. The strikes come two days after Russia blamed Ukraine for the deaths of at least 27 people from shelling in Donetsk. Kyiv denies responsibility. Up next, China defying Western sanctions on Moscow. It's importing a record amount of crude oil from Russia. We get analysis with the host of Entity Business in a moment. Welcome back, everyone. We have Entity Business host Don Ma with us now to discuss China defying oil sanctions. China, the world's biggest crude importer, defied Western sanctions and received a record amount of crude oil from Russia last year. So, Don, how much did China import from Russia? Okay, so Russia shipped a record amount of over 107 million metric tons of crude oil to China last year. So that's a lot. It's equivalent to about uh, more than 2 million barrels per day. And the volume of uh, Russian crude shipped to China jumped uh, about 24% in 2023. So with this, Russia has in fact become China's uh, number one supplier of crude oil. Uh, and previously, that uh, top spot uh, used to be Saudi Arabia. Um, so Russia now accounts for 19% of China's uh, uh, crude oil imports, while Saudi Arabia now makes up 15%. So it's the first time that Russia has become China's number one supplier since 2018, so more than half a decade ago. Uh, and so just let me mention quickly how China was able to, def to defy those sanctions. Now, if you remember, Russian oil uh, was uh, shunned by many international buyers uh, because of uh, Western sanctions over the invasion of Ukraine. And then Russian crude oil traded at significantly discounted prices compared to international benchmarks. And China took full advantage of that. Total spending on Russian crude oil reached over $60 billion, uh, $60 billion last year. And what China did was um, that Chinese refiners used intermediate traders uh, to handle the shipping of Russian crude. And this allowed China to avoid direct sanctions uh, which were imposed. Yeah. Right. So in light of all this, China, of course, being such a big market, is, does Western oil sanctions have uh, on Russia, have they been working? 
Well, let's uh, let's put it this way. Uh, let's say that it hasn't worked to the fullest extent extent that uh, lawmakers had hoped. Uh, maybe it had some effect to a degree, but Russia has tried very hard to overcome Western sanctions uh, by diverting all the shipments east. So that's from Europe to India and as well as China. So previously, the EU was uh, the largest buyer of Russian crude oil and oil products, um, but. Uh, since uh, 2023, uh, China and India took that spot and became 90% uh, of, of Russia's uh, oil exports. And in fact, Beijing and Moscow have been uh, increasing uh, their ties over the years, over the past two years in terms of trade. And overall trade between China and Russia hit a new record high as well, uh, over $200 billion in 2023, up 26% from the previous year. And what that means is the two countries actually achieved a goal set in 2019, about half a year earlier uh, ahead of schedule. So it seems like those sanctions are working to a degree, but not to the full ex extent that uh, people mm -hmm. are hoping for. And Don, you mentioned those intermediaries that China uses to get around actually violating the sanctions outright. And I'll point out that Bloomberg reports that China, it takes in oil from Iran, but it says it's actually coming from Malaysia. So they use some deceptive practices to get around all that. But what's happening with United? Right. Uh, quick update on that front. United Airlines on Monday said it's forecasting a first quarter loss. And that's because the Federal Aviation Administration is grounding the company's Boeing 737 MAX 9 airplanes. The MAX 9 is the model that was involved in the Alaska Airlines incident earlier this month where the plane's door plug blew out midair. The FAA has grounded all Boeing MAX 9 jets until they clear inspection and maintenance protocols. So United says that it's going to take at least until January 26. Uh, the airline said in a filing it expects to post an adjusted loss of between 35 cents and 85 cents a share for the first three months of this year and their shares uh, were up over six percent in after hours trading yesterday just a quick mm. update there yes apparently they had a relatively strong holiday period right but i mean today their earnings calls coming up so that will give more insight into whether they're actually getting some compensation from boeing for these groundings but thank you so much don ma host of ntd business for these insightful updates yeah my pleasure and stay with us it looks like a week-long strike ended in California after one day. NTD's David Lamb comes in to tell us more. A legal battle pits a Christian cake shop owner against a person who wanted a cake to celebrate a gender transition. Find out the details. I'm David Lamb in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we are NTD News. Good to have you back, and we have NTD reporter David Lamb with us now. Yeah, here to talk about the thousands of faculty members who went on strike at California State University. So, David, that was the plan from the teachers union, but why did the strike get cut short? Yeah, basically they reached a tentative deal. The, um, the teachers union wanted a 12% increase in their salary, uh, but the, the school, uh, California State System, they, they, they gave them a 10%, you know, tentatively. So that's 5% retroactively and another 5% later 
uh, this July. So, um, you know, they've been asking for raises and benefits as well. So, um, the first time the uh, university said they can't afford the 12%. Mm. Right. So, well, the strike's really been picking up in the U.S. What is it? Crisis averted? Or what, what would have been the impact of the strike? It would have been huge because the CSU system, the California um, system in well, the state of California, there's 23 campuses and up to nearly half a million students. So they just began their spring session last week. So, you know, if you think about it, in the first few weeks of school, you know, if, a, if it was shut down for a whole week, we're not sure like how many faculty members would have been involved, but that would have been um, delaying classes and some students might have been happy about that, you know, right. extended <laughs> break. But uh, they are paying for it and this, this mm -hmm. tuition. Um, we don't know how much this would affect tuition as well with the increase. So are both sides happy with this deal? They, so pretty much the, um, the school says they're, they're, they're happy that they're able to meet um, somewhere in the middle and they want to work with their uh, staff world-class staff and provide for the students mm -hmm. and and the union they're also happy as well though they did want a 12% at first so the union chair says he believes that the members would overwhelmingly ratify um, this contract once it's put to vote now another thing is there's um, they're also asking for extended paid parental leave uh, protection against dealing with police if any of the faculty members have to go through that. Oh. Um, improving access to gender inclusive restrooms and lactation spaces. These are just a few of the uh, things that they're asking for. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the, another thing is that the lowest paid faculty members, they, they're currently being paid at the salary floor, which is about uh, 54000 and 65000 they're also getting an additional $3,000 in raises. This, this deal could go uh, public uh, Friday. It's, it's still being worked on. Yeah, it's really good to know. And, you know, this builds on the progress in higher education that these the TAs were pushing for at the University of California and also those grad students at the University of Southern Cal. So a lot of developments here. Yeah, yeah. very well-rounded update. Thank you, David Lam. Yeah, thank you. And a Christian cake shop owner is in court again for refusing a customer's request. Jack Phillips of Masterpiece Cake Shop had previously been sued for refusing to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. The Supreme Court ruled in his favor in that case, but now he's facing another legal challenge. Entity's David Daniel Monahan spoke with an attorney on the current case, which involves a cake for a gender transition. The Colorado Supreme Court is hearing a new case where Masterpiece Cake Shop baker Jack Phillips declined to bake a cake celebrating a person's gender transition. The person, attorney Autumn Scardina, sued him, claiming that Phillips had refused service based on gender identity. Scardina, a man who identifies as a woman, wrote on X that Phillips refuses to make any cake that, quote, celebrates me because I am trans. Telios law attorney Teresa Sidebotham says Jack Phillips has no problem doing business with anyone and would never refuse to serve someone based on their race, religion, or lifestyle. The problem, according to Sidebotham, is when he is asked to expressly design something to convey a point of view. But if he's being asked to express a message, he'll only express messages that he's okay with expressing. So for instance, he won't put 
insults on cakes. He won't do Halloween cakes because that goes against his religious convictions. Masterpiece Cake Shop refused to make the custom-designed cake pink on the inside and blue on the outside, saying the customer specifically requested that the cake express messages and celebrate an event in conflict with owner Jack Phillips' religious beliefs. And the particular individual that requested this pink blue case had had also requested some other cakes. One uh, was basically obscene or pornographic. One had a satanic theme and Jack Phillips also declined to do those cakes. Here's Phillips on EWTN News Nightly discussing the case. We serve everybody and we even offered the person suing us other cakes but we just can't create every message that people ask us to create with our custom cakes. Attorney Teresa Sidebotham says this case is part of an American free speech theme that's been going on for decades. Sidebotham says an artist should not be compelled to create art expressing something the artist doesn't agree with. When artists have to create art in a certain way, it turns into propaganda. I mean, look at art coming out of the USSR or the, the Nazi regime. It, it's not considered the highest fine art. I think that same courtesy should be extended to people across the political spectrum, and we might have more congeniality and civility if we did that. The case is currently in the briefing state at the Colorado Supreme Court. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, 20 people stranded on an ice floe half a mile from Lake Erie shore yesterday. A Coast Guard helicopter and airboats were dispatched to help along with first responders. What was the result of the multi-agency rescue effort? As temperatures drop, the chances for frostbite goes up. See the early warning signs and what to do if you spot them. I'm Kelly Wright. We thank you for joining us and watching America's Hope here on NTD News. Bottom line is, I know you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, but let's give you some good news in the midst of the bad news. Watch us nightly right here on NTD News for a full dose of America's Hope. Happy to have you back and 20 people are safe after being stranded on a Lake Erie ice floe yesterday. The Coast Guard said it received a report Monday morning that people were stuck on a mile long flow about half mile off Katawa Island State Park near Clinton, Ohio. A Coast Guard helicopter was sent from Detroit and airboats headed to the scene from a nearby station. First responders and law enforcement in the area also assisted. The Coast Guard was able to rescue nine people. Another four were rescued by other agencies. Seven more made it to shore on their own in an airboat. No injuries were reported. Wow, that's a Luckily, relief. Yeah, and thankfully nothing worse happened because 
you know, in, in water at freezing point, a human can only survive around 15, maybe 45 minutes. So Yeah, hypothermia is very serious. Yeah. Um, and it's a dangerous condition that can happen quickly when a person is exposed to extremely cold, cold weather. Yeah, and frostbite causes a loss of feeling and color in areas that are affected and can cause permanent damage. And because the extremities get numb, many people may not even know it's happening. In frigid cold, it can happen within minutes. Unfortunately, frostbite is a real concern. Emergency physician Mark Conroy with Ohio State's Wexner Medical Center says the parts of our bodies that are furthest away from the core are most vulnerable to frostbite, including ears, nose, fingers, and toes. By the time you hit true frostbite when you're damaging the tissues of your, of your body, uh, things are typically numb, so you, know, you don't necessarily feel them. That's why you need to know the signs, including a white or grayish yellow skin area, skin that feels unusually firm or waxy, and numbness. If any of these symptoms are present, Conroy says to get out of the cold right away, shed wet clothing, and start to slowly rewarm the body with dry blankets and lukewarm water. You don't want to, you know, go too close to a fire uh, because some of the ways that we can rewarm ourselves uh, can actually hurt us further. You can also help prevent frostbite by wearing waterproof clothing and footwear. Wear gloves and keep other extremities, like ears and your nose, covered as well. And Conroy says not to drink alcohol. You might be suffering from the cold more than you realize if you've had something to drink before heading outside. I think that was an important point, to not go close to the fire, because that might hurt you even more. Yeah, you don't want to go the other way too far. But yeah, this is really important, especially considering we had that polar vortex sweep across the country, right. those sub-freezing temperatures. Right, of course. All right, uh, we will be right back in just one minute, so stay with us. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. Hours before the New Hampshire primary, former President Donald Trump telling NTD his expectations for his one-on-one -on -one face off with Nikki Haley and how he plans to unify the country. Many polls are already open in New Hampshire. Haley took the lead after the very first votes were cast right after midnight. Is that a sign she has a chance of beating frontrunner former President Trump? A reporter's update. A last-minute look at the polls in New Hampshire as the GOP frontrunner looks to build off his 30-point win in Iowa. The Supreme Court siding with the Biden administration. It's allowing Border Patrol to cut down razor wire installed by Texas along the southern border. That's as the issue of illegal immigration heats up in the 2024 election. 
Faculty members in the California State University system ended their strike after reaching a tentative agreement with management. What were they striking for and what will they get? Another round of strikes in Yemen. The U.S. and the U.K. say they struck Houthi infrastructure near the capital Sana'a as concerns mount over a broadening regional conflict in the Middle East. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Tuesday, January 23rd. And in today's top news, at the final rally last night before today's New Hampshire primary, former President Trump tells NTD he's confident he'll win by big margins again, repeating his Iowa victory. He also touts endorsement from alliance of his former rivals who were campaigning with him as he's set to face off against Nikki Haley. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more from New Hampshire. Just hours before primary day here in New Hampshire, former President Trump telling NTD that he thinks he's going to win by big margins here. Do you think it'll win by the big margin here? I think we're going to win by big margins, yeah. Forget about it. Uh, we just had a lot of polls come in the last hour, and you see what they are. They're very good. Would you call Nikki Haley to drop out? That's up to her. He also told me he has one key to unite the country. How would you bring unity to this country, President Trump? Success. It's going to bring unity. Success. Supporters waited in line in the cold for as long as six hours to try to get into this packed rally of Trump in Laconia, New Hampshire. I, I think it's a one-man race at this point, and it's Donald Trump. And he's going to work hard to get things back to where they should be for America. And Trump showcasing a flood of endorsements he's gotten, including some by his former rivals who joined him on the stage. Vote Trump, and that's how we do this. We need Donald Trump. If you want four more years of Donald Trump, let let me hear you scream! In three different polls released on Monday, Trump's leading his only rival now, Nikki Haley, by double digits. But despite that, Trump is telling his supporters to still go out and vote. Because we have to win by big margins. The reason is in November, we have to send the signal that we're not playing games. This country has gone to hell. And on Tuesday, Trump will be joining us at his watch party in Nashua, New Hampshire, from where we'll bring you live coverage throughout Tuesday night. Reporting from Laconia, New Hampshire, Aris Tao, NTD News. And some polls have already opened and voters can begin casting ballots in the New Hampshire primary. I spoke to NTD's Chris Spears for an update on what's happening on the ground. Polling places across the state will open at uh, about 7 or 8 a.m., with all of them open by 11 a.m. They'll close at 8 p.m. In some places, voting opened at midnight with less than 100 people, any place with less than 100 people. Um, one such place, Dixville Notch, New Hampshire, has made it a bit of a tradition to start voting in the middle of the night. All six of the voters there came out in support of Nikki Haley. Um, they were outnumbered by reporters 10 to 1. Fun fact, in 2020, uh, all five of them voted for Joe Biden, which could indicate something about the results of tonight's election or not, because there's only six voters there. Evelyn. Mm, well, look at that, Nikki Haley in the lead. So you've been covering Haley's campaign. Give us a quick update, uh, update there as well. Now, one of the interesting things about Nikki Haley's campaign here is that, um, you know, 40 percent of the voters in New Hampshire are undeclared. And... Uh, 
Uh, undeclared voters in New Hampshire can vote for either the Democratic or the Republican uh, primary. Uh, many of those voters are expected to come out and vote in the Republican primary, uh, many of them for Nikki Haley. So that could make things pretty interesting here tonight as the vote count comes in. What's next in this race? Again, voting will open an, across the state at 11 a.m., closing at 8 p.m. And, of course, at 8 p.m., we have The Nation Decides 2024, our special live coverage of the vote count as it comes in, featuring NTD's Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer. Back to you, Evelyn. Yeah, looking forward for that one. Thank you so much, Chris Spears. Uh, keep us posted as well. And we're bringing back in Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times, to give us a preview of what to expect tonight in New Hampshire. Lawrence, good morning. Hi from New Hampshire. Glad to be here. Yes, excellent. Thank you. We have a small sample, about six votes there at the Midnight Cali in uh, Dixville Notch, New Hampshire. That's all going to Nikki Haley. It's not much of an indication of what's going to happen, but it does make for some curiosity to start. So what do you expect to happen tonight? Well, there's widespread expectation that Donald Trump is going to win this primary. In fact, one New Hampshire voter told me last night after Ron DeSantis dropped out, of course, he was polling below Nikki Haley, but he said that the race got a lot less interesting. He said there's only one question now, and that's will Trump get more than 50 percent or won't he? So I think a lot of people are expecting that the margin is going to be for Donald Trump. The question is how much? Okay, Lawrence, I hear what you're saying there. There are some voters in New Hampshire that are optimistic about Haley pulling forward here. They're saying that there may be a groundswell. What would Haley have to do in order to pull off a victory here? Well, she'd have to turn out uh, an amazing number of people. Now, one thing maybe on, in her favor uh, here in the early going is that we're told that voter turnout is a little lower than usual in the places that uh, we're hearing from. And that perhaps could bode well for Nikki Haley. If Trump voters think it's in the bag, they stay home. Uh, but uh, she's really got to depend on the people that she's already reached to turn out and vote. She's been holding rallies all over the state, as you know, and it's time to get them to the polls. Yeah, and Trump, we've seen him in Iowa repeat that statement, go out and vote, don't sit back at home and try to watch the victory on TV. So he's really trying to get a lot of turnout. A donor to Governor DeSantis said that Haley is drama-free in contrast to Trump. She's center-right and not MAGA. Is that more in line with the wishes of the New Hampshire electorate than Trump? Well, not according to the polls, but we'll see. That's why they uh, take the, cast the votes. And, yeah, she has positioned herself well as the alternative to Trump for people who are looking for an alternative to Trump. And uh, she's campaigned on that no more chaos. It's time to move forward. Uh, we'll see if that's what voters want. The polls are showing. And uh, the question is whether polls in New Hampshire are as reliable as elsewhere, because uh, voters tell me New Hampshireites are really private people. This is New England. You don't talk about your feelings here. And, and people don't like to talk too much about uh, personal decisions like politics. So are the polls accurate? Uh, we're going to validate that tonight with the result of this election. Okay, Lauren, so would a win in New Hampshire give Haley an advantage in the Palmetto State, South Carolina, which the Wall Street Journal cast says Trump country? Yeah, it really is. Uh, he's leading there, too. In fact, he's been parading South Carolina uh, people who have... Uh, endorsed him from South Carolina. He's got uh, Tim Scott, of course, we saw Nancy Mace just yesterday, the congresswoman down there, governor, a uh, lieutenant governor, almost trolling Nikki Haley by bringing all these South Carolinians up to New Hampshire. Uh, 
but it win would definitely boost Nikki Haley. She's not expected to get that high. Uh, and if she wound up beating Donald Trump, that would be big news. Yeah, and Representative May says that South Carolina likes Nikki Haley, but South Carolina loves Donald Trump. Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times, thank you for your time. Thank you. And don't make sure you miss, make sure you don't miss our special coverage of the New Hampshire primary coming up tonight. Join NTD's Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer for another exciting election night on The Nation Decides 2024. Exclusive on-the-ground access and special guests. Watch the action live tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And with only two Republican candidates left in the New Hampshire primary, what issues have helped voters decide which way to cast their vote? Let's take a look. Well, I liked Donald Trump when he was a president before. I felt our country was safer. Um, you know, we didn't pay as much for gas and everything else we're paying for. So I, and you know, and it, we didn't have wars going on. So I feel he's a better choice. Trump represents the people. He represents um, the founding fathers. He represents the Constitution. He represents freedom um, and uh, so, uh, U.S. sovereignty. I'm with Trump because he supports fishermen. You know, and uh, this obviously is my livelihood. If the business climate is better towards people like him, I do better. Nikki's the truth, and she's amazing. She's beautiful. She's the best at the debates. She just crushes and stuff. It'd be refreshing to have a young woman who's intelligent in the Oval Office and also not to have Trump come back. Youth, energy, although Donald has a lot of energy. I will give him that, but um, new ideas and uh, a new perspective. I think there's a very real opportunity for Nikki to squeak out a percentage point on top of Trump. And wouldn't that shake the rafters? With the GOP race now down to two, former President Trump continues to hold a wide lead in New Hampshire polls. The front runner is coming off a 30-point win in Iowa caucuses last week. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on voter sentiment going into tonight's contest. A Washington Post-Monmouth University poll released Monday has former President Trump leading by 52% in New Hampshire and Nikki Haley at 34%. Haley is hoping to win over the independent and unaffiliated who've made up as much as 45% of the state's voters in past primaries. Haley had 48% of this group, passing Trump by 10 points. But Trump had a 42-point lead when it came to registered Republicans, coming in with 64%. More Trump supporters than Haley's were extremely motivated to vote. Trump's biggest advantages came in economy, immigration, and foreign policy. The latest CNN poll has Trump with 50% support among likely GOP voters, with Haley at 39%. Both polls were conducted last week, after Vivek Ramaswamy dropped out to endorse Trump, and before Florida Governor Ron DeSantis followed suit. DeSantis supporters in both polls were twice as likely to name Trump as their second pick. If Haley manages to win in New Hampshire, she still faces a national electorate that seems set to renominate Trump. The latest CBS News YouGov national poll has Trump at 69% to Haley's 12. No Republican has ever won the party nomination without winning either Iowa or New Hampshire. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Up next, another round of airstrikes on Houthi targets in Yemen. The U.S. and U.K. say they targeted supply infrastructure used by the Iran-backed terrorist group near the capital city, Sana'a. 
The Biden administration gets a win from the Supreme Court as a border state tries to stop the flow of illegal immigration. Here are the details coming up. Welcome back. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis faced two significant setbacks yesterday. The Georgia Senate appears ready to approve a committee to investigate corruption allegations against Willis, as reported by Breitbart. And a Superior Court judge in Georgia unsealed the divorce case of Nathan Wade. Wade is the Fulton County Special Prosecutor handling the 2020 alleged election interference case against Trump under Willis. Allegations arose about a romantic relationship between Willis and Wade, who reportedly benefited from taxpayer funds allocated by Willis's office. Wade was paid over $650,000 in legal fees from January 2022 to December 2023, according to court documents. Details from Wade's divorce case revealed he bought airline tickets for himself and Willis for trips to San Francisco, Miami and Aruba. In related news, a judge has put the deposition of Willis in the divorce proceedings of Wade on pause. The judge said Wade himself is the best source of what income he earned and whether he is having an extramarital affair. The Biden administration got the green light yesterday to remove razor wire fencing that Texas installed along the southern border to stop illegal immigration. Justice Department has argued the barrier impedes the U.S. government's ability to patrol the border and coming to the aid of migrants in need of help. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the Supreme Court's ruling. The high court agreed Monday to temporarily let U.S. Border Patrol agents cut or remove the razor wire fencing. In a 5-4 decision, the justices granted a request by President Biden's administration to pause a federal appeals court ruling. The appeals court last month ordered the Border Patrol agents to stop removing razor wire along a small stretch of the Rio Grande while court proceedings continue. The Justice Department asked the Supreme Court justices earlier this month to step in on an emergency basis to wipe away that order, which they did on Monday. Two conservative members of the court, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett, joined the three liberal justices in the majority. Conservative Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh dissented. Texas put up around 30 miles of the wire along the southern border near Eagle Pass, Texas. Migrants can be seen here talking with Texas officials through the razor wire. Texas Governor Greg Abbott discussed the state's attempts to protect its border, speaking on Fox News, calling the waves of illegal immigration an invasion. By people we don't know who they are, where they're coming from, or the danger they may pose. Abbott says Texas cracking down on illegal crossings was the right move. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell addressed border security on Monday, calling it a matter of basic sovereignty. America's national security begins with securing and maintaining our borders. The fencing at issue in the dispute was installed on private property along the Rio Grande River by the Texas National Guard as part of what was called Operation Lone Star. The operation was launched by Governor Greg Abbott in 2021 to deter illegal border crossings. 
President Biden last week said he's looking for, quote, massive changes regarding U.S. immigration rules. Because I believe we need significant policy changes at the border. Republicans have sharply criticized Biden's immigration policies and the flow of illegal entries across the border with Mexico, an issue certain to heat up ahead of November's presidential election. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Faculty members at the largest public university system in the U.S. ended their one-day strike after reaching a tentative agreement with management. In a statement released last night, the agreement includes two salary increases for all California State University faculty members. There will be a 5% raise effective July 1st, 2023, followed by another 5% salary increase on July 1st, 2024, I should say. The California Faculty Association, the union representing CSU faculty, said that thousands of professors, librarians, coaches, and other workers walked off the job yesterday. This comes two weeks after university officials ended contract negotiations. They had offered a 5% pay raise this year starting January 31st. The union had asked for 12%. The union says CSU has $766 million in emergency reserves and can afford the salary increases. But the university said the reserves are meant for times of economic uncertainty or emergencies, including wildfires and earthquakes. And yeah, that is July 21st, or July 1st, 2023. It's retroactive, so they get uh, the back pay. Yeah. And U.S. and British forces carried out a fresh round of strikes on Monday on Houthi targets in Yemen. It's the eighth round of attacks by the U.S. military and the terrorist group since the start of this flare-up. The Pentagon said the latest strikes targeted a Houthi underground storage site. The British Defense Ministry said precision-guided bombs were used to strike multiple targets near Yemen's capital, Sana'a. The targets had been used by the Iran-backed terrorist group in their attacks on ships in the Red Sea. The Houthi attacks have disrupted global shipping and stoked fears of global inflation. They've also deepened concern that fallout from the Israel-Hamas war could destabilize the Middle East. So far, multiple rounds of strikes have done little to stop these attacks. And the Israeli military says 21 soldiers were killed in combat in southern Gaza yesterday. This is the single biggest loss for Israel since the start of the war against the Hamas terrorist group last year. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu on X called it one of the most difficult days since the outbreak of the war. He said the IDF has opened an inquiry into the incident. The war in Gaza entered its 108th day today. Netanyahu vowed last week Israel will not stop fighting until, quote, total victory. And moving on, China is defying Western sanctions, importing a record amount of crude oil from Russia. Earlier we spoke with Don Ma, the host of NTD Business, and we asked him exactly how much oil China imported from Russia. Okay, so Russia shipped a record amount of over 107 million metric tons of crude oil to China last year. So that's a lot. It's equivalent to about uh, more than 2 million barrels per day. And the volume of uh, Russian crude shipped to China jumped uh, about 24% in 2023. So with this, Russia has in fact become China's uh, number one supplier of crude oil. Uh, and so just let me mention quickly how China was able to, def to defy those sanctions. 
Now, if you remember, Russian oil uh, was uh, shunned by many international buyers uh, because of uh, Western sanctions over the invasion of Ukraine. And then Russian crude oil traded at significantly discounted prices compared to international benchmarks. And China took full advantage of that. Total spending on Russian crude oil reached over $60 billion, uh, $60 billion last year. And what China did was um, that Chinese refiners used intermediate traders uh, to handle the shipping of Russian crude. And this allowed China to avoid direct sanctions uh, which were imposed. Yeah. Right. So in light of all this, China, of course, being such a big market, is, does Western oil sanctions have uh, on Russia, have they been working? Well, let's uh, let's put it this way. Uh, let's say that it hasn't worked to the fullest extent, extent that uh, lawmakers had hoped. Beijing and Moscow have been uh, increasing uh, their ties over the years, over the past two years in terms of trade. And overall trade between China and Russia hit a new record high as well, uh, over $200 billion in 2023, up 26% from the previous year. And what that means is the two countries actually achieved a goal set in 2019, about half a year earlier uh, ahead of schedule. So it seems like those sanctions are working to a degree, but not to the full ex extent that uh, people mm -hmm. are hoping for. X marks the spot for a hobby that is on the rise across the UK. We're talking about treasure hunting. Let's go on a treasure hunt with one teenager hoping to uncover a piece of history. Finding buried treasure has been a dream of many throughout history. In the UK, treasure hunting is a hobby on the rise. Treasure is the technical legal term in the UK for anything over 200 years old and containing some kind of precious metal. 14-year-old Patrick Hooper is a boy with golden dreams and a metal detector. It's treasure hunting, really. You go out on a field, and sometimes you find junk all day, but you never know. It could be one day, one signal, that you could get something that changes your life forever. According to figures published by the UK's Department for Culture, Media and Sport, the number of treasure pieces found in 2022 in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland is the highest since the 1990s. Almost 1,400 treasure finds were reported, making the ninth consecutive year where discoveries exceeded 1,000. Why have treasure discoveries been more successful than in times past? This curator of archaeology at Norwich Castle Museum says it comes down to improved technology. Agriculture with bigger and bigger equipment, with going deeper and deeper into the plow soil, we're seeing more and more people engaged in metal detecting as well, but also those machines are getting more and more powerful. They're able to seek deeper and deeper. In the UK, any treasure found by detectorists must, by a law, be reported so museums have the opportunity to acquire anything culturally or historically significant. While Patrick Hooper made no finds today, Chances are he'll be back out again soon, on the lookout for treasure and his quest for gold. Yeah, I've seen That's people fine. use those metal detectors on the beach. It's a good Me hobby. Me too. I wonder, what, I wonder what you can find by that. That looks awesome. Yeah, right. the UK is a good place to do that. You know, you never know if you find, find some shillings. <laughs> for sure. All right, uh, we're ending our show right here, but we'll keep you updated, of course, with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.